Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to be talking about Caesar, Weber, and charisma. And of course, Caesar is not usually thought of as a political theorist, but there are lots of Roman political theorists who write about Julius Caesar. And that's because Julius Caesar is this very, very charismatic figure that you've just got to have a view on. And within the canon of political theory, there's also Caesarism, which is the idea that we need something like a Caesar. And when we talk about what a Caesar is, that's where we come on to charisma and Weber. Because a Caesar is that charismatic person who overcomes all the institutional obstacles to deliver the solution that only they, they alone, can deliver. Now, Edmund, I know, hasn't read quite as much on some of these as in the past, a couple episodes, but I think he's still going to be able to contribute a whole lot this hour because he's very inquisitive. The main thing I want to start out with is uh, the Weber text, which is politics as a vocation. And in that text, Max Weber makes the argument that there are kind of two uh, ethics that a political leader needs to have simultaneously at the same time. One is the ethic of responsibility, and the other is the ethic of conviction. And the way I tend to like to think of these things is that the ethic of responsibility is to do with making sure the state doesn't collapse, making sure you don't end up with a civil war or a coup or something really catastrophic. Um, It's about maintaining order. And the ethic of conviction is about having beliefs about what matters that go beyond order, uh, that are to do with truth or or values or the good or something, right? You have to have convictions or beliefs. Now, Weber doesn't tell you what specific convictions or beliefs to have, but he says if you're going to be effective in politics, you need to have some convictions and some beliefs. And the reason why is that a political system— can't really legitimate itself to people anymore by appealing in the way that, for instance, Hobbes' system does purely to our desire for order, our desire to survive. Political systems have to be more inspiring than that. They have to connect up with some of our higher values, some of the things that we care about. And for that reason, an effective politician has got to persuade people that they care about stuff but also that they don't care about stuff so much that they'll endanger the survival of the state. And this is the trade-off, because Weber doesn't want someone who is all responsibility and no conviction, someone who doesn't have any beliefs but is just there to maintain the state, because that person won't be able to legitimate the state to people. While at the same time, Weber also doesn't want someone who's all conviction, no responsibility, because that person will destabilize things in an attempt to pursue values too quickly and in too disorderly a way. 
So you've got to balance these two things together. And Weber also makes an argument in that piece about the evolution of authority. So Weber argues that in the old days, traditional authority tended to give you legitimacy. If you were the ruler who was in, endowed by God uh, or in some kind of line of kings, the bloodline or the relationship to God, that's what would give you authority. Uh, later on, Weber talks about the rise of the bureaucracy. He's very interested in the development of the big bureaucracy of the modern state. And he says that as that big bureaucracy develops, people become more interested in legal authority, power that comes from being legally um, endowed with the powers that you have, say, because you won an election or because you occupy a particular office. But Weber thinks that the thing that's becoming more important, especially in the age of universal suffrage, is charisma, the ability to inspire And charisma is very much connected to conviction because how do you inspire people? Well, you tend to inspire them with your convictions. Politicians rarely use responsibility to inspire or talk very much about how they just want to keep everybody safe. That's not very inspirational. But it's those higher values that tend to inspire people. I remember Jeb Bush saying at one point during 2016, I I just want to keep our country safe. That isn't very inspiring compared to, I remember all of the forgotten people and I'm going to change the whole world for you and make everything a lot better than it was. Believe me, I can do it. (laughs) Right? Who's got the charisma, the, the person who's trading on conviction or the person who's trading on responsibility? It's usually the conviction person. Hmm. That that's basically my quick five minute version of Weber. Hmm. That sound about right to you, Edmund? Yeah, uh, those impressions were marvelous. I I hope we get to hear more of those impressions on the podcast. I think there'll be popular demand for them. Oh, there, <laughs> I always I always like to throw impressions in when I teach. Keeps people engaged. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, when we're talking about Julius Caesar, you know, one of the things that Weber says is that the need for charisma has grown in modern times because there's this big bureaucracy that's difficult to wrangle, difficult to get to do anything. Weber worries mm-hmm. a lot about bureaucrats because bureaucrats, in his view, don't have responsibility or conviction. They don't believe in anything, and they always blame whatever they do on the fact that it's their job or they're just following orders. So Mm. Weber's very worried that the state is being taken over by bureaucrats and civil servants who have no responsibility and no conviction and who will therefore sleepwalk the state into all sorts of crises and then uh, refuse responsibility for what they've done. Uh, And I, I don't think that that's the only way you can end up in a situation where there's a demand for charisma. Because there have been many points in history prior to the rise of the bureaucratic nation state where charisma has had a premium put on it. And the one that really stuck out to me is the late Roman Republic. Because during the late Roman Republic, you have a situation where gradually over time, land has concentrated into the hands of a small number of very rich oligarchs. And the people who can no longer afford to be farmers uh, and have been deprived of the means of subsistence are very, very frustrated in the late republic. And 
you know, the late republic responds by trying to give them offices and, and give them uh, assemblies where they can talk and where they can feel that they have a say in things, the tribunes, for instance, or the people's assemblies. But those organizations are never really able to solve the problem of concentration of land ownership. And so what begins to happen is that these people start joining the army because if they serve in the army, then there's a possibility that the army will conquer territory and that they'll get some of that land. And this possibility is even guaranteed after what's called the Marian reforms of Gaius Marius, where instead of having a conscription-based army, the ordinary Roman can now sign up for, I think it's a 20-year term, and at the end of that term, be granted a plot of land. And this means that these ordinary soldiers now have their livelihoods dependent on the success of the generals who are leading them. And so the charisma of those generals becomes important because if those generals are charismatic enough, then they can potentially persuade their soldiers to try to give them even more power and even more wealth, which they could then hand to the individual troops as rewards. And so in the late Republic, you get these armies under these very charismatic generals taking the state or threatening to take the state and seize a lot of the land that is held by the Senate oligarchs and redistribute it, what they call land reform. And there are a number of late Roman land reformers like the Gracchi, Gaius Gracchus and Tiberius Gracchus. But those Gracchi, they don't have large armies under their command. So the senators are able to um, murder them and get rid of them. But later on, when these what they call populare, populist generals, are leading the soldiers directly, uh, they've got people to back them up. And so when they make pushes for land reforms, those pushes are much more difficult to stop. And so in this situation, you know, the Roman Republic tried to adapt its institutions to enable it to overcome the land distribution problem. But those adaptations weren't actually able to get the job done. And they became a, a way of kind of fobbing off the plebeians with promises of political input that didn't turn into solutions to their problems. And when there is a blockage in the ordinary institutions of a republic where you can't solve a very chronic problem that causes a lot of people a lot of discomfort, I think that that's the moment when people start looking to the charismatic leader, to the Caesar figure, because the Caesar figure is the one who can break through that institutional deadlock and solve the problem, or at least that's the way the Caesar figure is pitched. And so in the last two episodes, we were talking a lot about the distribution of time, and we were talking about ways of trying to get past this problem of only some people being able to have time. And land, of course, in the ancient world is the basis for time, because if you've got land, then you've got slaves to work the land, and then that frees you up and gives you free time to live the life that the ancients considered to be the good life. And so when you're talking about land ownership in a Roman context, what you're talking about is time concentration. It's not just that the land is concentrated, it's that the access to free time is concentrated. It's that the access to liberty in the ancient sense is concentrated. So these concentrations are 
not just purely economic or purely material, they reach into every other element of the society. And so mm-hmm. that's the kind of problem that if you can't solve institutionally, you do tend to get this agitation for something to break through. And since we were talking in the last couple episodes about ways of potentially trying to do that, and we weren't very satisfied by Constant's answer last episode, what about Caesarism? What about Weber's charismatic leader? That was kind of my thought. And this is the, an answer that has been compelling to people at many points in history, and people often are very quick to dismiss it. But uh, people often, often turn to this if they get sufficiently frustrated with things. There were, have been a few occasions where I've talked about climate change with students. And one of the ways I like to push things a little bit is to ask students, you know, if, if we can't solve climate change by electing politicians who care about climate change, if that won't get the job done, if they're not willing to go far enough, would you be willing to support what I call Great Green Fist, a Caesar figure who is obsessed with preventing climate change by whatever means necessary and will break and distort any institutions that stand in the way of fixing the problem? And when I talk to young people about this, particularly young people who care a lot about climate change, the answer is not obviously, no, I wouldn't support that. And so I'm going to put this to Edmund. Edmund, we've talked before, you and I, among ourselves, about how hard it is to deal with climate change and all the political obstacles that are in the way. If there was a realistic chance of installing a green Caesar, would you do it? Mm. I remember you asking this uh, question to me once before, and I think the answer I gave then was that I thought that even if we could, it probably wouldn't work, and that it's better sticking with some form of democracy because, uh, as Aristotle pointed out, even though a benevolent monarchy might be a good place, you can never really guarantee that you won't fall into the trap of what Chinese political thinkers called the bad emperor problem, where you've got a bad emperor, a bad Caesar, and you can't get rid of them because there is no uh, there is no succession mechanic that you can really affect as a citizen. You just have to wait for them to die and that kind of thing. Uh, so that was my answer then, that uh, I was sticking with democracy. I think that the idea of a great green fist, I think, is quite tempting if we don't think it's possible to get through big climate legislation at the moment. Because, of course, ideally, you would do something at the moment because you couldn't really exercise, for instance, um, in the so-called People's Republic of China, it's quite difficult to guarantee any particular actions on climate change, although there have been actions on uh, big energy shifts, but not on a scale that is anywhere near the level of meeting the problem. I think that you run into that problem again, that having a great green fist could, in some possible world, work, 
But I guess this comes back to the problem of charismatic leadership, that when you give someone uh, the, when you give a charismatic uh, person with great conviction the power to change things, you can never quite guarantee whether they'll use it in the right way. And I think this is partly because, uh, as Plato pointed out, that the kind of ideal rulers you would have, if you are going to have a particular class of rulers, are people who take into account the whole city, the whole polis, the whole state. But with a charismatic ruler, they haven't necessarily got to where they are because they pursue um, the good of the community. They might often get there because of their rhetorical skills, which don't necessarily correlate to their desire for truth, for wisdom, or for caring about the whole community. So I think that's the danger. I think that's the danger in general with investing charismatic leaders with this kind of power, because the kind of qualities that you would need uh, to become this kind of figure uh, are generally the qualities that you wouldn't associate with doing it really well. In other words, to find someone who is really charismatic to do this, uh, you'll be finding someone who isn't actually up for the job. Uh, the alternative is some kind of philosopher king of Plato's uh, imaginary. Uh, and if you had that as a great green fist, so not a charismatic person, but some kind of genius, wise, platonic philosopher type, and you put them in charge, then I imagine that that in theory could work. And if everything else fails, if literally there is no other way and the planet is going to burn and we have exhausted every single other possibility, then of course, if you could click your fingers and install a philosopher king to get it done and an infallible philosopher, philosopher king at that, then that might be worthwhile. The difficulty uh, is that I, I don't think that it's likely that we would find anyone who would be up for the job. Right. So did you notice there's a couple interesting things that came out of Edmund's answer as there always are, right? One is that he pointed out and reminded us that for Plato, the, because the skills that you need to be the Caesar in a democracy are skills to do with conviction and the creation of the feeling of conviction, i.e. rhetorical skills, because you need a lot of rhetorical skills, that tends to mean that you're not a good person. Because for Plato, rhetorical skills and being a good person rarely go together because rhetorical skills are to do with persuading others and therefore with appealing to others rather than to the truth. And for Plato, mm -hmm. since most people couldn't know what the truth was anyway because they had the wrong kind of soul, if you were in the business of trying to appeal to others, it was very unlikely that you could also be a good ruler. So Edmund made a bit of a Platonist argument there that in a democracy, the kind of person who could be Caesar couldn't be a philosopher king, yeah. but could only be what Plato calls the tyrant figure. Yeah. Right? I mean, if I could just jump into that particular point really quickly, the difficulty yeah. of getting to Plato's philosopher king, and this is a further difficulty with the great green fist, um, is that the society you would need uh, to produce a philosopher king would already have to have a philosopher king. So it kind of goes in a circle. In order to find a philosopher king, you would need to create a society that produces a philosopher king. 
But in order to produce that society, you need a philosopher king. Uh, Right, and Plato thinks that as you tend to get more deviant from the society where the philosophers rule, it becomes harder and harder to produce philosophers. Right, right. Because the the conditions for philosophy become more and more remote. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, So that's that's one issue, but I don't want to get too sidetracked on Plato. (laughs) Right? The other other thing that you brought up um, that that was very interesting uh, about this is that, well, you you thought that it probably wouldn't work anyway, and that we would have better odds at trying to do something with the existing institutions, Mm -hmm. right? You still feel that way about it. That's certainly the answer that you gave a year ago. Mm. And that's important because think about the way Weber talks about the bureaucratic nation state. For him, there are these bureaucrats, and they're in the way of the state functioning properly because they're irresponsible. They lack conviction, right? It's a depoliticized group of people who are running the state without acknowledging that they're running it, who have got all sorts of implicit convictions about how things ought to go, but never admit that and never accept responsibility for the way that those convictions influence what they do. Weber's bureaucrats sound a lot like contemporary technocrats in that they have claims to expertise, but they try to position themselves as non-ideological and apolitical, as neutral arbiters, Mm. right? Yeah. And so one of the questions when you are asking, uh, should we go for the charismatic leader, is do we think that our political institutions are thoroughly dominated by the kinds of people who make it impossible for you to do anything in the first instance because they are uh, unconsciously ideological Mm. and not responsible in reference to that. And so it Mm. asks a larger question about our own institutions today and, and whether they've become too technocratic the people who think that you need a Caesar are the people who think that the institutions are altogether too technocratic, that they resemble too much those very, very sclerotic bureaucratic institutions Weber depicts. And by the way, Weber, for the benefit of the audience, Weber is writing in Germany and politics as a vocation. He writes near the end of his career, shortly after World War I has been concluded in the early days of the Weimar Republic. Mm. And what Weber seems to be saying is that the institutions are going to be very difficult to manage, and it's going to take a lot of charisma to manage them because they're full of the wrong sort of person. Mm. And they're full of the wrong sort of person because they require so much bureaucracy, so many civil servants. And Weber thinks the nature of that job makes it such that that job is filled by the wrong kind of person, Mm. right? That's not the right kind of vocation for politics for Weber. Politics is a specific vocation, and it's distinct from being a civil servant, being a bureaucrat. And of course, what ends up happening in Germany, not so very long later, is that they do end up with a charismatic leader who subordinates the Weimar Republic's bureaucracy. And we all know who that charismatic leader is. Mm. 
And so here's the thing, right? So if, if we don't want the charismatic leader, if we want to avoid the charismatic leader, usually that means that we've got to do something to shore up the institution so that it doesn't become so, so static and undynamic and sclerotic that people start to feel the way about the institution that Weber feels, where they start to go, well, it's not going to work. It couldn't possibly work unless there was an unbelievably charismatic person at the top of it. Mm. Right? And in the Roman case, all of those attempts to gently reform the Roman Republic to make it more inclusive toward the plebs, all of those things failed to take care of the distributive question that was at the bottom of it. And so what that does is it makes the system just appear even more complicated and useless because there's so many different offices, so many different positions in the late Roman Republic, many of which are open to plebs, but none of which seem to actually give you the power that you need to do the land reform. Mm. And that's kind of by design, but since you've created a state where it's impossible to do the things that people feel need doing... Mm then you're going to have a very hard time persuading people that they don't need the charismatic person to solve everything. Now, I'm not suggesting, I don't want to be heard to be suggesting that we're at a time when there are charismatic leaders who are wannabe Caesars or wannabe Hitlers. I don't think it's gone quite that far. I think if you look at the supporters of the most charismatic politicians that we have, you know, people like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, most of them are not looking to abolish democracy. Most of them are looking to do some institutional reforms. And those institutional reforms are pitched as things that would fix democracy, that would unblock it, that would make it work better. Mm. Right? Yeah. And of course, the question is, do those reforms, would those reforms actually accomplish that purpose? And so there are a few different ways I could imagine those kinds of institutional reforms working out, right? One is the way that they worked out in the late Roman Republic, where you create a lot of ways of seeming to include plebeians in decision-making without actually changing conditions in a way that meets their demands, okay? Yeah, yeah, that you can be a tribune, you can vote in the People's Assembly, but at the end of the day, land ownership is still concentrating, right? Mm. I can imagine those kinds of reforms. I can also imagine, say, the reforms not of Julius Caesar, but of Augustus, right? What does Augustus do? Well, Augustus reforms the Roman Republic in, in such a way that it is still called a republic and is still treated as a republic and believed to be a republic by many people, but it doesn't quite function like a republic anymore, right? Augustus occupies lots of different offices at once and calls himself princeps, meaning first citizen of the republic. We, he, we think of him as the first emperor, but he doesn't call himself an emperor. Mm. And indeed, Roman emperors continue to refer to themselves as princeps for several hundred years after Augustus. And so in that, in that case, you're reforming the state in a way that aggrandizes one particular institution, but not in a way which obviously, at least to the people at the time, makes it non-democratic, right? That's what I think we are seeing in places like Hungary. There's been executive aggrandizement where the executive yeah. has, has combined a lot of powers together and reduced the powers of neighboring institutions, but not in a way that makes many of the people in Hungary feel 
that Hungary is no longer a democracy. Yeah. Now, I, I also don't think that is the most likely option either. I think that right now we're in a phase that's more like that late Roman Republic in the sense that the institutional reforms people are proposing are mainly to do with trying to give people a say. But it's not clear to me that giving them a say will actually deliver what they're looking for. Hmm. Right? You can find all sorts of different ways to let Plato or Aristotle's slaves vote or talk without permitting them to end the institution of slavery. Right. And so, yeah, this is just kind of what I've been thinking about here. I think one interesting question is whether charismatic leaders necessarily have conviction, because I can think of some charismatic leaders who don't necessarily have uh, the kind of moral convictions that coincide with Weber's ethic of conviction. Would you say that's true, Benjamin, or, or is there a, a closer association between the two? I would say they have to appear to have conviction, at least to their followers. Right. They don't necessarily have to actually have conviction. Right. And... It's not that everyone has to think that they have conviction, but their followers have to believe it. Right. I think even today, Donald Trump's followers think that he has conviction. Mm. And is that conviction something that's perceived as being rational or emotional, do you think? I'm asking this question because of Weber's kind of types of rationality. Do, do you think conviction is something that for Weber is... Uh, at least in uh, politics as a vocation, is something that is an emotional moral commitment or something more rational? Does it not matter? Does, does all that matter that there is an appearance of conviction? I think, I think politically all that matters is that there's an appearance of conviction. Right. And I think in different contexts that would be marketed through different valences. I think, it, for instance, I think there's some societies where a charismatic politician will use more pathos and emotion right? because the political culture is, uh, rewards that and other places where the charismatic leader will stay away from that and pitch things in a more analytical, critical way. Mm. That doesn't mean that there's any actual substance behind the analytical, critical thing. I think that a lot of the time people assume that if you're saying that the leader is being emotional, that that means that they're less substantive than the leader who is using uh, rational valence. But right. if you look at a lot of, say, charismatic people who are kind of in that debater scene, they come across to their followers as very rational people in the way that they present themselves rhetorically. And the followers like to think of themselves as following a great thinker. Yeah. But if you then went and asked academics, or do they actually know what they're talking about? The academics would say no. I'm thinking here of someone like Jordan Peterson. I, ne who, I never would have guessed, Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, who has an, an uh, he has a charisma and it's in an analytic uh, aesthetic style. Uh, but I don't think that that is something that most academics would recognize as based in, in genuine clarity of thought. Are you saying... So of course, he has his fans. Are you saying that taking Zoran Kierkegaard and pretending that you've invented this stuff for the first time is not academic work? 
Oh, I don't think he pretends he's invented it for the first time. I'll give him that much credit. Okay, yeah. I, I think yeah. he he often positions himself as as revealing ancient truths. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not alone, and and I don't mean to signal to to single him out. There are a lot of people, especially in the British kind of debate scene, the people who do a lot of yeah. public debates, who will use a kind of rational, analytic aesthetic style yeah. to mask a, a lack of substance. I think that when, for instance, um, Richard Dawkins, for instance, debates atheism, that those positions that he takes are usually not positions that people who debate religion from a, a theological standpoint or a metaphysical, philosophical standpoint would take to be nearly as convincing as his fans who don't have training in those areas think that they are. Right, yeah. Uh, and I don't say that as a person who's religious. I just say that as a person who is familiar with some of those debates. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think so. It varies a bit. I think in Britain, this kind of charisma tends to be a sort of debate thing where you are good at trading barbs or you're good at being witty. Yeah, A lot of British people, for instance, uh, tend to be attracted to people who are really good at House of Commons debates. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's charisma, but it's charisma of a rational valence. Whereas in the United States, I think that charisma tends to be more emotional in style. I don't think that that means that it's necessarily any, uh, any less grounded in anything or any more grounded in anything. I don't think mm. the charismatic American politician is worse than the charismatic British politician or better than the charismatic British politician. I think mm. it's just a difference in style rather than substance. Yeah. I've often said that if Donald Trump just talked in a less emotional way, he would be a lot more popular in Europe because there are a lot of European politicians who share a lot of his positions who receive significant amounts of vote share, mm. but they don't speak in the emotional style that tends to be off-putting, especially in, in Northern Europe, I'm thinking of, uh, where the political culture is quite unemotional. Mm. To invoke some other, an, another book by Max Weber, the, Max Weber um, the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, do you think that rational, emotional uh, difference between the employment of charisma in the States versus the employment of charisma in Europe has something to do with uh, religious roots at all? Or do you think it's just something that happens? Well, what do you think is the cause of that or of the difference? That's a very interesting question. I'm not sure I know. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. If you look at Southern European countries, like, say, Italy, it's more of an emotional valence. Right. So that's just undermined the Protestant ethic argument that I was about to pull out of the bag there. <laughs> right. If you were going to argue that Protestantism <laughs> leads to a more emotional style, but, I think that, not, not at all, yeah. 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 No, no. I don't think that uh, that's necessarily the case. Yeah. And the United States would also disprove the converse, that Protestantism leads to a more analytic style. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I've always, when it comes to Protestant work ethic, I've always found that argument unconvincing. I think that religion tends to get structured by other things more than religion does the structuring. 
Maybe it's something to do with capitalism, though, the different stages at which these states are at. For instance, Mediterranean states, in some respects, like in Italy, being where you could argue some aspects of capitalism began. But despite that, it really took off in Northern Europe and in Britain. And then the uh, states got ahead in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, might that be something to do with it? The kind of entrepreneurial uh, marketing ethos? I've always been more inclined to blame the Italian wars, the French invasions of Italy for Italy's relative stagnation. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just really, uh, sorry. I was just meaning to relate that to the charisma point about char charisma, emotional charisma being perhaps more important in the States due to a kind of more entrepreneurial ethos and the emphasis on selling stuff in an emotional way being commuting to mm. politics in some way. That's my spurious theory that I'm just throwing out there. <laughs> yeah. I, th these, when it comes to the origins of cultural stuff, I think very often it's hard to say what the origins of cultural practices are. Right. And there's a tendency to want to ground them in further cultural differences. Right. 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 And I think that oftentimes we start to do that when we don't know. When we don't know and we're kind of social scientists, when we don't know and we're fishing for an explanation we tend to grab uh, different cultural distinctions as the explanation. But the problem is if we're trying to explain a cultural difference and we explain it by grabbing another cultural difference, well, then we just need to explain that cultural difference right. and so on in a never-ending series of, of cultural entanglements, yeah. which I think is good for producing publishable academic journal articles, but not for much else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, yeah so it's, it's useful to kind of look at these institutions that structure the charisma and, and to relate it back to the broader, broader themes in this episode, I, I guess you could argue that, uh, that this tendency towards more charismatic leadership is a product, as you said, of the bureaucratization of the state, uh, the rationalization of the workplace, the, and, and the shift from... Um, substantive rationality, as Weber calls it, emphasis on morality first, um, the kind of ethos you could argue the Middle Ages, where a substantive rationality dominated, to a more um, instrumental, technical um, rationality and modernity. But uh, as you say, that cultural shift or shift in ideas, shift in how people think, how people reason, is driven by these changes to the institutions happening over the past few centuries. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and certainly the Frankfurt School, for instance, gets very interested in, and we'll, we may talk about them at some point on the show, the uh, turn toward instrumental reason and the abandonment of substantive values outside of instrumentality, outside of uh, essentially market logic and survival imperatives. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And does that relate to conviction in some way? Because I guess that it's quite ironic that politicians saying that, uh, or coming across as very uh, charismatic and being perceived as having lots of conviction, in reality, that appearance of having lots of conviction may be false. And I think it's, that's a, a deep paradox, perhaps, at the development of 
charismatic politics and politics of conviction simultaneously with the loss of thinking about moral values as objective facts in the world. Mm, now you're putting Weber into conversation with Nietzsche. Mm. Uh, yes, I think that you have, you have something interesting here, that if you uh, follow Nietzsche in saying that God is dead and we have killed him, you and I, that's what Nietzsche says. And what Nietzsche yeah. means by that is that people no longer believe in traditional uh, objective morality, objective values, yeah. and that there is now some need for a substitution or for some kind of, of new path. Yeah. I think that if you're looking for conviction in a world where increasingly people feel disconnected from objective values or from substantive rationality or sub, from substantive values, uh, that search for conviction can often lead to dead ends or, or lead to people who are just uh, pre presenting a front. Because I think very often people can mistake a particular style of argument or a particular emotional display for having conviction. One of the things I, I've noticed yeah. is that there's a tendency in politics in the United States to mistake a politician who displays rage for a politician who has beliefs. Right. And the thing is, whenever you are, uh, whenever you are connecting conviction to a particular aesthetic performance rather than to actual policy stances or actual uh, governing behaviors. When you're, when you're attaching it just to an aesthetic performance rather than to what someone is doing with power, you can be fooled. As soon mm. as you say, well, I'll believe someone is conviction if they get angry in public, well, politicians will start to catch on and they'll get angry in public. Mm. I, I think this happens quite a bit. So, for instance, I think there was a big push in the 80s and, and 90s for politicians to not gaffe because it was perceived that politicians that gaffed were unstable, unreliable, might be like Richard Nixon. Yeah. And so politicians tried very, very hard not to gaff, and that made them look like they didn't have any convictions because they never said anything controversial. They were always trying to avoid offending anybody. And that frustrated people, and I think now when people are looking for conviction, they're also looking for someone who is willing to gaff and gaff openly and unrepentantly. And yeah. so a lot of the things that used to be gaffes are now rewarded. Right. And uh, along uh, that line, politicians have started to figure out that people believe if they're willing to say absurd things or to say controversial things, uh, that they will be believed to be authentic and, and to have charisma. That notion of authenticity in our contemporary politics is, I think, closely tied to charisma and to conviction in people's minds. People think that a politician who is authentic, has conviction, and is charismatic. The problem is that you can, you can be inauthentically authentic, that you can create a facade of authenticity if people think that you're authentic purely if you display the right kinds of emotions or make the right kind of bullying arguments in a British debate style, Yeah. right? If those kinds of displays, aesthetic displays, become associated with real conviction and real authenticity, then inauthentic people can imitate authenticity yeah. to you. Yeah. And I think this is something that people have known for most of human history, but it's been kind of forgotten lately because we went through an era when the inauthentic people were just refusing to say anything controversial. 
Yeah. Now the inauthentic people are pretending to be authentic. They um, create these these uh, conviction fronts by by making emotional displays in American politics and by being vicious debaters. I think in the British in the British scene, I think that's the mm. equivalent. Yeah. Charisma as an outlet for false conviction, perhaps. Yeah, and it's it's because people, when they're trying to decide, is, does this politician mean it? Do they actually care? Are yeah. they actually going to try to solve the problem? They aren't looking at what the politician does, their history of behavior. They're looking at whether the politician displays the aesthetic signifiers that are their heuristic shortcuts for determining whether somebody has conviction and is authentic. We use aesthetic stuff as heuristic shortcuts. So if we think that someone who gets really angry, oh, the only way that they could get that angry in public is if they really cared. And we use that as a shortcut for determining whether somebody cares. Sooner or later, politicians will figure out that we use that shortcut and start to create a facsimile of anger. And I think a lot of politicians do this. I think Cory Booker does it. I think Kamala Harris does it. I think Elizabeth Warren does it, this facsimile of anger that I don't think is really based in any reality. Yeah, yeah, I think it is so interesting that simultaneously our age is one of the apparent rebirth of moral values and of finding what's gone wrong, all the myriad oppressions that need to be undone. But it's also an age where people are more skeptical than they've ever been of objective morality of some kind. It it does go back to Nietzsche and uh, Dostoevsky's phrase, if God is dead, uh, everything is permitted. And I think that though this is something that even objective moral realists like Plato would object to, because for Plato, you don't need a God to guarantee morality because the good is just good. You don't need a God to guarantee that fact. But I think that for most people, it is helpful to have some kind of uh, guarantor. And in the absence of that guarantor, charisma and all these other things become so much more important. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think it's, it's also interesting how it tends to track with impotence, with uh, the, that feeling of institutional impotence, which we talked about a little bit earlier. But to kind of circle back to that point, right? Um, the thing about needing a charismatic leader to overcome institutional impotence is that If you actually need the charismatic leader to do that, you are in really bad shape in a lot of ways, Mm. institutionally. And it, it often has not really been the case that the charismatic leader has actually been able to solve the, the problem. What usually happens is that the charismatic leader creates a bunch of trouble And then the world kind of explodes and is remade. And when it's remade, a lot of the old problems are still there. Hmm. I think we've got kind of in the history of 
European great power politics. Three big Caesars, right? There's the original Caesar, Napoleon, and Hitler. Mm. And each of those three Caesars produces a big conflict that spans the territory of Europe. Yeah. And when it ends, the original problems aren't resolved. And that's because the original problems are the big pro- are chiefly the big problem that we've been talking about, which is this runaway tendency for states to produce immense, immense inequities of land and time and freedom. Mm. And if you look at the Principate under Augustus, the Principate in some ways is more stable, but it, it doesn't really remove or greatly diminish the role of the oligarchs in the economy. Mm. The, the Principate economy is still very, very unequal. The distribution of land is still very, very unequal. Mm. And... When you look at what happens in Europe after Napoleon, there isn't a whole bunch of leveling. It's not as if, I mean, there, there's democratization eventually, much later yeah. in some places, but that democratization doesn't come with economic leveling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And similarly with Hitler. Yes, West Germany ends up getting um, a welfare state and things like that, which is some improvement for West Germany. But at an immense price, East Germany ends up under a deeply authoritarian regime. They don't usually go well. The Caesar figures don't usually go well. Yeah, yeah. Because what they kind of are is they're, they're, they're wrecking balls for the institutions. They're just big, big wrecking balls. Yeah. And they're usually not very good at building what comes next. I would say of, of, the, of the three, and it wouldn't be Julius Caesar, it would be Augustus. Right. Who would be the most successful in terms of building institutions that are stable and long-lasting. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And you do get the bad emperor problem in Rome, but because of the structure of the Roman Empire and the role of local elites in government, the bad emperors don't have a lot of direct effect on provinces during the Principate. Okay. People like Caligula or Nero, their effects are not felt very much in the provinces because they don't directly administer the provinces and they don't directly command most of the soldiers. Right. Yeah. Later on in, in the what they call the dominant era of the Roman Empire, when the emperors take a much more direct role in managing the soldiers, the bad emperor problem is a more severe problem. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting the role that charisma continues to play in the Roman Empire, to come back to the Roman thought element of this episode of the show— Charisma continues to play an important role because the emperors who follow Augustus all claim to be the inheritors of the charisma of the divine Augustus. 
And Augustus, during his reign, associates himself very much with the ability to secure peace, a peace in several different senses, a peace in terms of ending the civil conflict that raged before he became princaps, peace in terms of keeping and maintaining the borders of the empire, which Augustus tries to to solidify to a significant degree, and peace in terms of pacifying provinces where there's unrest or instability. Uh, The Roman Pax or Pace, that's where we get pacifying or pacifier. And it's an interesting usage of the concept of peace because it involves using force to bring about peace a quite Roman understanding of peace. But that's kind of how Augustus pitches himself during his reign, as the peacemaker and the peacebringer and the pacifier. And emperors who follow trade on that charisma. Of course, the consequence of having a legitimation mechanic based around being able to maintain the peace is that if someone challenges your reign— The mere fact that someone has been willing to challenge you and that you haven't put them down yet itself suggests that you don't possess the charisma of Augustus. And so one of the legitimation problems that the Roman Empire gets into under the Principate is that its leaders need to demonstrate their charisma by defeating usurpers. And if they can't defeat a usurper, that itself becomes an excuse for the usurper to attempt to usurp. And so it's interesting how if you, if you build a political system around charisma, and I think Augustus's Principate is the closest that we've come to a political system that's overtly built around charisma uh, in a long-lasting way, you still get this problem of challengers. And there's an argument for it in the sense that if you have a very, very bad emperor, there's an excuse built into the Roman Empire's political system for deposing bad emperors. But it causes a lot of civil conflict. And of course, one of the things that we know now, listening to a a delightful podcast by Patrick Wyman called The Fall of Rome, is that one of the things that brought about the end of the empire is that the Vandals were able to escape from a Roman general who had Mm -hmm. them pinned down because that Roman general was distracted by a civil conflict. And the escape of the Vandals enables them to go into Spain and pillage Spain and go into North Africa and seize it. And at a time when North Africa is a very valuable province to the Roman Empire, the second most valuable province uh, after Italy um, or region, really, because by that point it would have contained multiple provinces. Uh, That made it very difficult for the Roman state to recover. Wyman talks a lot about the anima, the Roman subsidy for grain shipments from Carthage to Rome, and how that anima helped to fund trade throughout the Western Mediterranean. And so the loss of Carthage means the loss of the anima, which means the loss of a lot of trade in the rest of the Western Mediterranean too. And that damages the economy, damages the tax revenue, damages the ability to support armed forces and brings about the end of the Western Empire, or so Wyman theorizes, and I'm mm. quite fond of his view. Uh, but you see, that, that emphasis on charisma leaves you with this constant reason to try to usurp, uh, and it's something that afflicts the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, for a long time, 
too, this constant problem that if you need to demonstrate your charisma to be entitled to rule, if that's really a serious part of legitimacy, that you are always at risk of losing it. Yeah. And it's, it's an easy thing to lose. Charisma is not something that is easy to hold on to. The appearance of charisma in particular uh, is, is something that can be taken away very quickly. And so I think there's another danger in trying to rely on charisma that even if you're able to actually build a structure that can last beyond the lifespan of the initial Caesar, you then have a structure where there's a permanent controversy about whether the successor really does have all the qualities and embodies the, the specialness. Hmm. And that's a lot to ask of a person, especially at a time like now where, as you say, we have the problem of there not being an agreed-upon conception of the good or even an agreed-upon acknowledgement that the good exists writ large. Mm. And in the Roman, Roman world, you had a lot of Greek philosophy which offered accounts of the good, offered accounts of justice, yeah. offered accounts of what peace and, and order looks like for people to believe in. But in a contemporary context where there not only isn't agreement on what the good is, but a lot of people are not even, even able to agree that the good exists, I think it would be a lot harder for a Caesar figure to enjoy widespread charisma among large numbers of people. Hmm. And that would make it even less likely that a Caesar figure would be able to build something stable and lasting. Is that the danger with charisma, though, that it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to the real convictions either of the charismatic leader or of the people being led by that leader. Charisma can be a facade. It can be quite thoroughly manufactured. And though perhaps it betrays an appearance of conviction, it doesn't need to be underpinned by it. So, So do you think there is a possibility for a charismatic leader, dangerous or otherwise, to emerge from all this, um, who would somehow manage to unify people, whether it's in a bad way or a good way, um, but around some kind of manufactured ideal, an ideal that people latch to um, because they have no other options. I think, we'll all, I think we will continue to have a lot of charismatic politicians, politicians right. who say, I, I alone can solve like, the way that Trump does. Yeah, I think we'll continue to have lots of them. But I'm not necessarily convinced that they'll succeed in taking the state because there will be a lot of them all at once. And it will be hard for any one of them to win over a large enough number of people. Mm. And also, I think a lot of charismatic leaders today are, are still, especially in the very rich Western countries, are still committed Democrats and their supporters are still committed Democrats, not in right. terms of the Democratic Party, but in the sense that they're committed to democracy. Mm. And so their institutional ambitions aren't as big as that of a Hitler or Napoleon or Caesar. Mm. And I think that's a bit of a testament to the ideology, ideological power of democracy, that even the people who think that the institutions really need to change are not willing to throw the regime out. 
there aren't many people who think that democracy is the problem. Most people think that democracy is the solution and that the institutions just need to be unblocked so that democracy can work right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's even true of the the far right. I think it's not exclusively true of the far left. It's Mm. just that the far right and the far left have very different ideas about what unblocking democracy looks like. Mm. Yeah. An interesting parallel would be China, which has become, uh, since 2012, more and more uh, concentrated with respect to how power has been transferred from the polit- from the Politburo um, and the party writ large uh, to Xi Jinping. Uh, and that follows some of the logics of charismatic leadership. The Chinese economy has been not struggling, but it hasn't been doing as well as it once did in the late 2000s, early 2010s, say. It's uh, now a, f- a few percentage points lower in uh, annual GDP growth than it once was. And although it did recover from the uh, financial crisis and didn't really take the anywhere near the kind of hit that uh, America and Europe did and had a massive infrastructure spending package that made sure it did well by and large. There is, do you think there's an extent to which you can see that logic playing out in authoritarian states like China? Or, or especially with um, with Russia, where any semblance of democracy there might have been um, has been uh, minimized by their charismatic leader at the moment. Yeah, I think there are a lot of states in other parts of the world where democracy never got as thoroughly established as it has in the United States, Britain, the European Union, most of it. Japan, perhaps in a few other other quite established democracies around the world, Canada, Australia, places like that. Uh, yeah, the, the countries you're talking about never got that kind of established democracy. Yeah. And I think in the case of Putin, yes, you have a kind of Caesar-type regime in Russia. Yeah. When it comes to China... I'm always a little bit hesitant to comment on the future prospects of authoritarian states because I don't trust the data. Right, yeah. I, I think that the data that authoritarian states give, the, give us is messed with and doctored. Yeah. And for that reason, I'm, I'm never confident that we really have a picture of how well things are going. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, I'm always reluctant. One thing that I... Perhaps we'll have a discussion of parties as a concept in political theory more generally at a later point. But one thing that always bugs me about one-party states is that in a one-party state, you are concealing the dissent from the government, from the, the party itself. And that means that the government doesn't become aware of problems as quickly because people won't talk about the problems for fear of being policed out of the party. Yeah. And so, especially if you start doing purging, and one of the things that Xi Jinping has done is a lot of purging. I think it was 1.5 million officials in the last five years. I think that's Mm. the statistic. 
He's done a lot of purging, and when you do purging, you make people more afraid to speak up about problems that they see and more afraid to offer solutions to the problems that are recognized. And it also means that the people who don't agree hide their beliefs more, and that makes the government more paranoid about hidden enemy elements within the party, and that makes them spy harder and more comprehensively, and that in turn makes the dissenters in the party more careful and more cautious, and it makes them hide better, and that makes the government more paranoid, and that makes it look harder. And I think that you can get into these purge loops where you create an atmosphere of paranoia, you eliminate everybody who isn't very good at at being a yes man, and it saps the institution of the dynamism that it needs to adapt to problems going forward. And so I'm not really sure to what extent China has problems because I don't trust the data. But what I do worry about in the Chinese case is that if the charismatic leader is trying to make sure that there are no rivals and is heavily, heavily purging the party, that's the kind of thing that could mean that when the charismatic leader is gone, the institution doesn't have the strength that's required to renew itself. Mm. Um, An excessive paranoia from the charismatic leader tends to sap the future capacities of the institution. I think the obvious example of that is what the Soviet leadership class looks like after Stalin dies. Mm. Yeah. And so that's what, what worries me politically about China. I, I, I would comment on the political economy. I just am not confident that any of the numbers that I ever see yeah. to do with China's economy are real. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I... <laughs> Is that another argument against the prospects for great green fist, as you call it? Because that kind of regime is, uh, by definition, unlikely to have uh, the kind of replacement mechanics for rulers that could ensure that we don't have rulers who uh, either don't know what they're doing or do know what they're doing, but what they're doing isn't something that's in the common good. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of an expansion of your bad emperor problem, but it's more of, of a kind of sick party problem. Sick party, or a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even if you try to branch it out beyond just the one individual. And that's the thing about charisma. In reference to the Roman Empire, I said charisma is a vulnerable thing and it's easily lost. And so if your legitimacy depends on having charisma, it tends to make people worried about losing it. And that tends to give rise to purge cycles and periods of heavy purging. And that tends to sap the state of talent and tends to sap the state of people who will point out the problems and offer solutions. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that the fact that charisma is easily lost means that when you are leading a state where charisma is a big part of the story, fear and paranoia has a big effect on how you govern and that that tends to have negative long-term consequences for leadership quality. And so if the bad emperor problem is a worry, gradually over time, a charismatic state will tend to produce bad emperors uh, because it will tend to get rid of the people who are most able. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I guess another impediment to having some kind of Aristotelian rule by uh, the most able, rule by the best, is that uh, both in ancient Rome, where there was what Geoffrey Winters termed a, a ruling oligarchy, where you had oligarchs, but those oligarchs directly ruled. Uh, the, the, um, whereas in modernity, we have, in general, civil oligarchies. We have oligarchs who successfully engage in wealth defence, but they generally themselves don't particularly do the, do the ruling as such. And I guess the problem with that is that um, it's difficult to have a rule by the best if, as in ancient Rome, the best are the people who are um, the richest. You can't guarantee that you might have people uh, who don't get born in the right place, but who might have better qualities for leadership. And similarly today, I think you're seeing perhaps a return to um, attempts by oligarchs to assert political power, partly because they're less certain now of their positions. Um, is that another risk, do you think, um, with anybody's hopes for some kind of charismatic saviour, the fact that wealth is concentrated to such an extent where the people who do have charisma are often people who um, are engaging in things like uh, the love of money or status, which aren't really conducive to political rule. And one of the things that Winters says in that book is that money tends to be able to buy other forms of power. So if you can, for instance, buy media outlets that will make you look good, make you look charismatic, uh, that's another advantage that rich politicians potentially have. They mm -hmm. can, uh, and this is something Berlusconi certainly used in Italy. It's something that um, a lot of a lot of rich politicians will do. It's buy some of the media and try to use the media to make yourself look good. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's always, that's always a concern, yeah. uh, the possibility that charisma and wealth run together. And of course, Plato said that you couldn't really have philosopher kings unless you had a political class that was protected from the problem of having property and money and things that would give them too much of a personal stake yeah. in decision-making. Yeah. And the argument that Winters makes in that book is that at every stage, we have had people who have a personal stake having major, major influence over decision-making. And the only thing that has ever changed is the arrangement through which this happens. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about today is that it's, it's the civil oligarchy where nominally the rich do not rule directly. There is no property qualification for voting, but the rich are nonetheless able to use their money to influence politics to a point where it is as if they were ruling. Um, yeah. That's, that's the thing that for Winters is distinctive about now. Yeah. And then the, uh, yeah. And then the other great yeah. theorist of inequality at the moment, Walter Schiedel, uh, you, I think you hinted it earlier uh, that, Leveling in antiquity was something that could happen uh, more frequently when great outbursts of violence, um, be it revolution or, or, or famine or breakdown of empires, would massively reduce wealth inequality and thereby enable some kind of new civilization to be born in the ashes of the old. Whereas today, uh, the, the, the fact that the 
military technology we have is so destructive that any attempt at violent levelling would be absolutely catastrophic as well as immoral um, it is something that puts a restraint on the traditional ancient way of getting out of our kinds of problems, which is uh, the great leveller of violence to reduce inequality. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's a, a very good point. Yes, uh, Scheidel has, has made that argument quite convincingly that it usually comes alongside periods of violence and those have become less tolerable as yeah. weapons technology has improved. Yeah. Those periods of violence where you reorganize states and kind of start over. You know, if your institutions are so sclerotic that you need the Caesar wrecking ball, not so that you can have a stable institution under the Caesar, but so that you can just have the opportunity to start over. Yeah. I mean, that's another dark irony of history that we were talking about uh, Hitler earlier on. And the Second World War was something uh, that produced some of the pressures that led to that kind of uh, from the late 1940s to the, to the early 1970s, um, a period of sustained economic growth and inequality that didn't rise as such, but steadily declined in many states, um, and some kind of compromise between rulers and workers that enabled the fruits of the economy to, to be distributed more equally. And then that changed in the 70s with the collapse of the Bretton Woods system and the rise of uh, neoliberal policy paradigms. But those those 30 years, the 30 glorious years, as the French called it, those were only made possible, as both Schiedel and Thomas Piketty point out, by the Second World War. Uh, and that fits the historical trend of it being violence that precedes or, or generates the dampening effect on inequality that allows for future um, economic growth. So, that's another reason to be uh, somewhat pessimistic about the world today, that um, it's both the case that violence is something that uh, thankfully in uh, many states, or at least some states, is becoming something that is at least nominally uh, not uh, looked upon as something good. But it's also the case that um, without violence, uh, we're going to have to think of new innovative ways to combat problems like inequality, because it's not as though history presents us with an obvious way out of this. Yes, yes. This is a great point, Edmund. Thank you for making it. Yeah, yeah. The charismatic leader in the past has been a wrecking ball and often unable to produce a set of institutions that are long lasting. But the mess that the charismatic leader leaves usually creates some opportunity for some leveling at some point down the line. And World War II is an excellent example. Piketty and, and Scheidel are very, very into the impact that World War II has, mm. especially Scheidel. Yeah. And that's one of the very troubling things is that we certainly can't afford to have a conflict like World War II again and yet it seems very difficult historically to, even for a brief period, even for a temporary period of a few decades, 
get a respite from this tendency for land and therefore time and therefore liberty to concentrate into a very small number of hands, or more recently, instead of land, capital, right. to concentrate into a very small number of hands without some kind of period of disorder. And right. we are less willing as a society now to tolerate periods of disorder. And to tie it back to Nietzsche, who we referenced briefly, Nietzsche also thought that what was necessary was some kind of period of disorder out of which new values could be generated, spaces for developing new things could be generated. And, and the trouble is that in our context today, it seems impossible for anyone to feel even the least bit okay about advocating for that kind of disorder because we know that in a world with nuclear weapons and huge conventional armed forces, that kind of disorder is, is really, 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 really costly. And so this is the trouble, right? People might want a charismatic leader, but we don't want a charismatic leader who does what charismatic leaders traditionally do, which is be the wrecking ball that explodes the whole thing to the point where the world catches on fire. What people want is a charismatic leader who will just make some institutional adjustments to democracy and peaceably keep the whole thing humming along. But it doesn't seem like that historically has been enough, A. And B, in the past, charismatic leaders have not settled for that. Right. Especially because charismatic leaders tend to be a little bit narcissistic or megalomaniacal. Yeah. I don't think we've yet come to the charismatic leader who who would be the kind of Caesar figure who would kick off that kind of disorder. It's always possible that we could, but I, I don't think it's super likely because I think people are so, so phobic now, at least in the rich countries, about disorder. And about violence. I think there's real, real lack of willingness. And that's in part because of the, the point that you made about Nietzsche, that because there isn't unified uh, agreement or even wide agreement about the existence of the good or the true, there isn't very much that people are willing to die for in our world. If you know the late Frankfurt School is right and everything is instrumental reason to do with market logic and self-preservation, well, those kinds of reasons aren't the kinds of reasons that motivate people to die for a cause. Hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, I think there is at least some reason to think why. It, it might just be possible for some kind of political energy, which in many respects has already been unleashed, to be channeled uh, through leaders with charisma, but also with genuine conviction. An energy which can be uh, used to achieve some kind of approach to address inequality that I think doesn't necessarily require the levelling of the past, at least in terms of um, extreme wealth inequality because unlike in the past when technological development was quite low and this links to the Aristotle podcast app um, technological development today is at a stage where we can plausibly envision a world 
in which people don't, in fact, have to work as much, because robots could plausibly do quite a lot of the jobs that are done by humans now. And that might free up time uh, that people could use to do other things. And moreover, with this technological development, we wouldn't necessarily need to maintain the same levels of class inequality we do now. Uh, that wouldn't be something that would be necessary for future economic growth. And so I think it's at least possible to have some kind of peaceful levelling, at least to a limited degree, uh, that I think technological development could help. Is that a reason for optimism, Benjamin? It sounds like you've got a third way, Edmund. <laughs> I mean, I mean. It's, it's hard to say because it's hard to say what the rate of technological growth is going to be in this century. And there are lots of different views about that. And we know a lot about politics, but we don't know a lot about technology. That's right. It's, so it's hard to predict the level of automation. The, the marker, I think that the canary in the coal mine on automation becoming the kind of thing that could really change the game would be productivity. If we saw right. productivity really taking off very, very rapidly, that would be an indicator that automation was now going to have a serious effect yeah. on politics. But, but the good thing is- But that yeah. hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Uh, productivity yeah. growth has, if anything, been lower than one would usually expect oh, yeah. rather than higher. But it is, is one good thing that it is possible for politicians to accelerate this, uh, to accelerate productivity growth through such means as um, making labor more expensive so that people have to invest in- capital-intensive technology rather than labour-intensive stuff. Uh, in many respects, that's how capitalism began, with a, a contraction of the labour force following the Black Death and a rise in wages, incentivizing investment in technology. Uh, I'm not suggesting uh, <laughs> that this is entering a new phase of capital accumulation, but I guess I'm suggesting that it would be possible for politicians to do stuff like... Uh, increase union power and increase labour power and reduce um, and make labour more expensive in order to incentivize more investment in technology rather than relying all the time on cheap labour. That's at least some example of the interventions politicians could make to accelerate automation. Yes, and so I think this is, this is your, your big point, and I think we can, we can close on, on, on this if you agree with my summary of it. The circumstances we're in now, technologically, and also in terms of our expectations for politics, make now different from other times. So when we look back at history, we often go, well, historically, this hasn't worked, that hasn't worked. But sometimes things that couldn't have worked in the past can work now because of the ways now is different. Yeah. And so one of the ways in which now might be different is that there might be some reforms, some things that some kind of charismatic leader who isn't super charismatic, not, not Napoleon, but mm. a moderately charismatic leader mm. could do that might be able to move us toward a circumstance where more things become possible right. than were in the past, that we might be relatively close to a material situation where a lot more could become possible in the realm of reform 
than was possible at times in the past. And we need someone with that moderate level of charisma to guide us to that spot. And I won't rule that out in part because I want to end on a positive note. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there does seem to be a role for charisma at times when institutions don't appear to be working very well. It seems hard to argue that you can get out of that kind of situation without some charisma. Right. Yeah. The issue is if you have someone who's faking the charisma or someone who's a crazy maniac, um, then it can go very, very horribly wrong. And the kinds of institutions and structures you get after it goes very, very horribly wrong are usually not what you want, uh, either because they're too unstable or because they corrode the quality of leadership in the future. Mm. But I I think, yeah, I think that we can't deny that there is going to be some role for charisma in getting out of any period of institutional gridlock. And that's Weber's great insight, that when you have a very sclerotic government that's not inspiring, you need a little inspiration to get out of it. Mm. And so for that reason, we shouldn't be overly skeptical of, say, populism writ large. Mm, Because in in the right dose, supplied in the right way— At the right time. That would be the only way at the right time. That would be the only (laughs) way that you would get out of that kind of, of deadlock. Yeah. And that risk is, is there's also a, a risk going the other way that if you are like the Romans the, uh, during the late Republic, the optimates always argued that everyone who tried to use any charisma at all in politics was just out to take the state and become the, the dictator, become the king. Yeah. Everybody was trying to be a king. They would always argue, well, this person just wants to be king. That person just wants to be king. And I mean, once in a while it's true, but a lot of the time the charismatic person is really just trying to, to make a difference. Mm, yeah. And to move the state past the deadlock. And it bears remembering that a lot of those guys like Cicero who made those kinds of arguments in the late Republic, they tended to be very rich people who were beneficiaries of the distribution of land in Rome. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's the risk of going the other way. So I spent a significant amount of the episode kind of slagging off charisma as a solution. But the risk of saying no charisma, charisma is dangerous. The risk of that is that you don't solve the problem. And if you don't solve the problem, what Weber is showing us is that if you don't solve the problem, the demand for charisma is only going to intensify. The appeal of charisma is only going to intensify. And the more you run from the charismatic leader the more likely you are to end up with one that is all charisma, all conviction, and no responsibility. Yeah. The more you deny the need for conviction, the more likely it is that you will end up with the all-conviction politician with no responsibility. Right. I think that's, that's the position to come to. So it's not a third way, but perhaps it is what Aristotle called a golden mean between a golden e- mean. excessive charisma and... Emphasis on no charisma at all. But at the same time, not just a politician with a golden mean of charisma, but also one who has convictions which align with our present predicaments and would make progress in actually addressing them, in actually addressing the problems we've talked about, like civil oligarchy, um, the things that make charisma worse uh, and make 
charisma and conviction necessary at particular times in history, those conditions could be addressed by uh, charismatic politicians if we're able to find people who care both about the problems and about the political performance. Mm, yes, who care both about conviction and responsibility. Right. And that's the conclusion Weber wanted us to come to. Mm. He didn't want us to pick someone like Hitler, who was the all conviction, no responsibility politician. And also the one we would argue with bad convictions. Although, yes. Or, oh, yeah. of course. <laughs> but, of course. The, 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 Let no one make any mistake about that. Because Weber was, I think the, one of the issues with the Weber um, conviction responsibility is that there's a way of construing that to say that it's any conviction. Uh, whereas I guess that it's important to not fall too far from Plato's emphasis on the good, that we say that it's any conviction or any normativity, that there are some normativities that are better than others. Because if we reject that, if we reject the existence of moral good, then we will go for any conviction. And that's not a good situation to be in at all. Well, right. That robs you of the ability to argue with Hitler. Yeah. Rampant, rampant subjectivism robs you of the ability to argue with Hitler. And that itself is a good reason to reject that metaphysical position. Any metaphysical position that disarms you against Hitler is one that I'm not very interested in. And simultaneously, some people aren't really willing to go this far, but I think we want to suggest that, uh, as Derek Parfit suggested, we want to have some kind of moral philosophy that would be capable of persuading the worst people in history that they were wrong <laughs> or the people who did the worst things in history that what they did was wrong and if your moral philosophy can't do that it's not a coherent moral philosophy uh, can you make an argument for the sensible knave <laughs> hume's sensible knave that's a, a hume reference okay i've referenced hume i think we've about come to the <laughs> end of the line <laughs> Uh, thank you guys for listening. I, I think this one was fun. And Edmund, I think that that, that bit at the end um, really elevated the episode. I, I appreciate it. That was sharp. Oh, no. Thank you so much. It was a, such a fun episode. All right. So thank you guys for listening. I think the next one that we're going to do is going to be about Augustine and Carl Schmidt. And th- I think yeah. we're going to put Augustine and Schmidt together. I think that's going to be fun. Theological politics. Yes, theological politics. We're going to talk about religion a little bit. Uh, we, we hinted a little bit at some discussion of religion here, but we're going to really do it, uh, Augustine and, and Carl Schmidt, in the next episode. So, with all that in mind, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.